pray together. Father, we do stop and praise you for your glorious grace. Grace that chose us to be adopted into your family. Grace that redeemed us through the blood of Christ and purchased forgiveness of all our sins. Grace that seals us by the Spirit until we come to the glory that you have in store for us as your children. Grace that preserves us until the last day in faith. Grace that sustains us every day. So we praise your glorious grace this morning. And as we look at a passage together that explains more about that grace to us in salvation, I pray that you'd give us a greater capacity to understand what you have done for us. Or we can't grasp it all, I know that. But would you open our eyes to see more than we have seen before and respond with even greater thanks and praise to you. I pray for anyone who's here who's not tasted the grace of your salvation, who's a stranger to the things we just sang about and what we'll be reading about. Lord, only your grace can change their heart and bring them to the Savior. And we pray that you would be pleased to do that. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Years ago, a brother from our church family came back from a trip to the Grand Canyon. And his reaction was, it's so much bigger than I imagined. Our text for today might produce a similar response in us. That our salvation, our complete remedy in Christ for our complete ruin in sin is so much bigger than we had maybe thought. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. As we continue a series Brett started three weeks ago. You may remember the background. Peter, as an apostle, is writing with the full authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to... Believers in what is now northern Turkey, scattered throughout that area. These Christians are already experiencing some persecution. We'll see hints of that as we continue in the book. And in all likelihood are going to experience even more. And so Peter is writing to encourage them and to encourage us about how to live in a culture that is not necessarily friendly to our faith. And along the way, he'll be giving us many helpful instructions about living out the Christian life. So let's read the first two verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. So maybe one thing you notice there is that all three members of the Trinity have a role in our salvation. We also see that in Ephesians chapter 1. And both passages tell us 
that our salvation, our rescue from sin and its eternal consequences, and our restoration to God and the eternal joy of that is all part of an eternal plan of God the Father. We see that in verse 1 where Peter addresses these scattered believers as elect exiles or those who are chosen by God. Now, why does Peter bring that up? Doesn't he know that Christians get nervous and even upset when that subject is brought up? Doesn't he realize that we all have all kinds of questions about how that all works? Well, those things might be true, but it doesn't stop Peter or the Apostle Paul from talking about it. So just three examples. Romans 8.33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Or Ephesians 1. If you want to turn to that, we sang a paraphrase of it just now with to the praise of his glory. But Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3 and 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. And one more for now, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So we have to do something with that. There's those words, and they show up a bunch of other times in the New Testament, or the Old Testament for that matter. So because there are verses like that, we can't deny that there is such a thing as election. We can't deny the reality that there is a category of people who are called chosen. But sincere Christians have come to different conclusions about how that works and how they answer the question, who makes the first move? A number of Christians look at the rest of the phrase that says, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And They would believe that means God knows ahead of time that we will believe in Christ and on the basis of our decision to choose him first, God responds by choosing us. And maybe that's what you've always heard or thought. Very common way to look at it. But what if it's bigger than that? And I believe it is. It doesn't matter what I believe or you believe. What really matters is we all want to be Bereans. And that has a special meaning in our church family now because Cam's little girl is named Berean. So we'll have a constant reminder of Acts 17.11. The Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians. Why? For they diligently searched the scriptures to see if the things spoken were so. So that's what we're after here As I share for a few minutes or how you think about what you've always heard and thought, it all needs to be compared with what the scriptures say. So let's walk through some questions and some 
verses together. So first, even if we assume for now that foreknow just means to know ahead of time, what would God know about us ahead of time? So here's just three passages that are representative. There's more that describe our condition of complete ruin and sin. But here's three. First, he would know we are spiritually blind until he opens our eyes. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Beginning at verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservant for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine in the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So our last song today is Amazing Grace. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Why do you see? You were blind. The text says we were blind. Why do we see now if you're a believer? And this text says you were blinded, but there was an intervention by God to say like he did on the First moment of creation, let there be light. There was light in our soul that opened our spiritual eyes to see the glory of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Christ. We couldn't see that before. He had no, uh, uh, how does it say in Isaiah 53? There's nothing special about him that we should desire him. We didn't care. Now we want Jesus. Why? Because God opened our eyes. Second, thing that God would know about us ahead of time is that we love darkness and hated light and we can't change our own hearts. Let's go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. 19 through 21. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices to the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Wrought is just a a word meaning worked. So, we have, our hearts are not neutral. Our hearts is kind of like, oh, I could choose Christ or not choose Christ. Could go either way. I'm just stuck in the middle. It's very much, I hate light. I love darkness. And nothing less than this being wrought on by God is going to change that heart of mine so that I now want light and want to turn away from darkness. And one last one. God would know ahead of time that we were spiritually dead and unable to give ourselves life 
just like Lazarus when he was in the tomb. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So a typical way of looking at salvation is we're very, very sick. We have a terrible illness. And Jesus is the doctor and he says, just open up and take this medicine. And if you take this medicine, you'll be healed. Or you're drowning, you're going down for the third time, and Jesus throws out the the life ring, and if you just grab that ring and swim, you'll be rescued. But when Ephesians 2 says, you're dead, it means it's too late for the medicine, and you're already down at the bottom of the lake. You're like Lazarus in the tomb. You're not making the first move toward Jesus. Jesus has to give you Life. We're going to talk about that next week in verse 3. But anyway, putting just those three texts together, God would know ahead of time that nothing less than his miraculous grace could ever save fallen sinners like us. Second, what would God know about our faith ahead of time? And by the way, neither this verse nor Romans 8.29, where foreknow is also used, mention anything about foreknowing our faith. It just talks about foreknowing people. But since that's a common explanation for why we're chosen, let's ask, where did our faith come from? Did we come up with it on our own? Why do we believe in other people who hear the same gospel we heard don't believe? Is it because we're smart enough to make the right choice and they're not? Are we somehow better than other people that we kind of figured it out? Are we the final decisive cause for why we came to Christ and others didn't? So somebody asked Charles Spurgeon once, or said to them, him, God foresaw that you would have faith and therefore he loved you. And Spurgeon replied, what did he foresee about my faith? Did he foresee that I should get that faith myself and I should believe on him by myself? No. Christ could not have foreseen that because no Christian man will ever say that faith came of itself without the gift and without the working of the Holy Spirit. I've met with a great many believers and have talked about this with them, but I've never met anyone who could put his hand on his heart and say, I believed in Jesus without the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at some verses that remind us that our faith is a gift from God. Philippians 1.29. Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. So we talked in Sunday school the other week. What's the difference between a, what, why do you want college kids to get a grant? Because it's free. It's a gift. It's not a loan you have to pay back. It's not work study that you have to work for. Grants are free. So grant means free gift. To you, you have been given a free gift for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So believing in Jesus is a free gift. Or John 6, 
65. John 6, verse 65. And Jesus was saying, for this reason I've said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. You're invited to come. Come to Jesus. All who are weary and heavy laden, come. The question, remember school? Can I sharpen my pencil? Of course you can. (laughs) You have the ability. May I sharpen my pencil? So everyone may come. Who can come? And this Jesus says, you can't come unless it's given as a free gift by the Father. Ephesians 2.8, very familiar verse. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. So that, the closest word, is faith. Faith is a gift. It wasn't of yourself. It was a gift from God. And last, 1 Corinthians 4.7, what do you have that you did not receive? You have saving faith? Praise the Lord. Why do you boast as if it, you did not receive it? Is the rest of the verse. You received it as a gift from God. And that would be consistent with the pattern of cause effect we see in the rest of the New Testament. We love him because he first loved us. God makes the first move. God loves first. Then we respond. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Does the Father give us to Jesus because we decided to come to Jesus first? Or do we come to Jesus because the Father gave us to Jesus first? John 10, 26 through 29. John 10, 26 to 29. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So do we become a sheep because we believe, or do we believe because we are one of his sheep that was given to him by the Father? One more, Acts 13, 48. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So do we believe in Jesus First, and then as a response to our self-produced faith, God ordains us to eternal life, or do we believe because God appointed us to eternal life? So there's the question, isn't it? Does God choose us because we choose him first, or do we choose him because he first chose us? One more question. What if foreknow means more than just to know about ahead of time? We can't always determine what a word means by just looking at its parts. For example, a butterfly is not a kind of fly that likes butter. Or a pineapple doesn't belong to the pine family or the 
apple family. And so we don't want to assume too quickly that foreknow could only mean to know beforehand because that's the sum of its parts. So here's some examples that show that it does mean more. Amos 3.2, God says, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. Isn't God aware of all the other families on the earth? Is he oblivious? Of course not. He, he knows everything. He knows everyone. He knows all the families of the earth. He's saying he has a special relationship with Israel, his chosen people. Or Matthew 7.23, those awful words that many people that used the right language, Lord, Lord, and did some very impressive things like prophesying in Jesus' name and casting out demons and um, doing miracles, Jesus will say to many, depart from me, I never knew you. Does that mean Jesus didn't know who these false believers were? He had no idea who they were? Of course not. It means there wasn't a relationship there. Or Romans 11, 1 and 2. Romans 11, 1 and 2. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So again, there's this idea of setting his love upon his chosen people. God hasn't rejected the people he chose in what we call the Old Testament. And one more, right in 1 Peter Go to 1 Peter 1, verse 20. For he, referring to Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So, same word as in verse 2, same chapter, same author. So, it would seem like this would be what verse 2 means. Did God look down through history, discover a person like Jesus, who fulfilled all the necessary requirements to be the Savior, and as a result, invited him to join him as part of his plan for redemption? Or, was Jesus the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world and was always part of God's eternal plan here's the esv study note on verse two on the word foreknow this does not merely refer to god's foreknowing that they would belong to him but also means that he set his covenant love upon them in advance for ordaining that they would belong to him so that's a lot of information it's a lot of verses maybe you're just like whoa i've never heard that And again, I just would plead with you, be a Berean. Search the scriptures. Compare what you heard for the last 10 minutes or whatever and what you've always heard all your life with what do the scriptures say. And it may be that you come to the same conclusion that Charles Spurgeon came to about his salvation. One night when I was sitting in the house of God, the thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him. 
unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, but then I asked myself, how did I come to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. So back in 1 Peter chapter 1, the rest Next part of verse 2 says that our salvation was by or in or through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And did you see that was very similar to 2 Thessalonians 2. Let's read that again. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We should always give thanks to God for you. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So sanctify, along with the word holy and saint, simply means set apart, set apart for God. That is true of both our initial being set apart for God as well as the ongoing process of sanctification. So think of a verse like Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God at work in you, both to will and do his good pleasure. So the Spirit dwells in us. He gives us new desires. He gives us new ability so that we're becoming more and more set apart from sin, more and more like Christ. And Peter will have a lot more to say about sanctification and holiness as we continue looking at his letter. The next phrase in verse 2 tells us one of the purposes of our salvation is to obey Jesus Christ or unto or for obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ is not to be seen as optional. It is one of the intended outcomes of our salvation. And it is one of the evidence, evidences that we actually have experienced Salvation. First John 2, 3 says, By this we know we have come to know him. How? We keep his commandments. If anyone says, I've come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. So this obedience, this desire to obey, this new ability to obey, because the Holy Spirit indwells us, is so much a given in New Testament salvation that John can say it's one of the tests. Do you really know Christ? Do you care about obedience? Do you want to obey? That's the trajectory of your life. But, of course, our obedience is always incomplete. It is never perfect. We still need cleansing and purifying from our sin until we get to heaven. And so Peter adds the phrase in verse 2, to, and to be sprinkled with his blood. So, Jesus shed his blood on the cross, verse 19. Peter calls this blood precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And that blood is applied to us so that we receive all the benefits of his perfect sacrifice. Not just once and done back at the cross 2,000 years ago and paying for our past sins, but this ongoing cleansing and purification that we all continually need. And so in 1 John, John 
talks that way too. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So that's this sprinkling with blood. (laughs) Cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Verse 2 ends with the phrase, may grace and peace be multiplied to you or in fullest measure. Grace is God's undeserved favor and kindness. His saving grace, his sustaining and preserving grace. We saw last week, it's his grace to help in time of need, whatever that need might be. Or in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it's grace that enables us to bear a thorn that God doesn't remove. So we need grace. And Peter is, it's kind of a prayer wish. May grace be yours. And peace is a sense of well-being, knowing that all is well, because all is well between God and us. Peter doesn't want us to be just satisfied with our current levels of grace and peace. He wants it to be multiplied in fullest measure. So there's so much more grace from God to experience. So much more peace from God that we could experience. And and Peter wants it to just overflow in our lives and multiply. So, as we close, have you experienced this salvation we've been talking about this morning? Do you know you've been rescued from sin and have peace with God? Maybe you have underestimated your need for salvation. If you think, I'm a pretty good person, so I should be okay with God. You'd be very wrong. Listen to how serious our condition is in Romans 3. Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul adds, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So you read that indictment, you read that diagnosis, and the intended result is like Job, he put his hand on his mouth, like there is nothing I can say. There is no excuse I can make. There's no plea bargaining I can try. I am guilty as charged. I am undone. I deserve anything that's coming. That's, that's all of us. Did you notice all the there? There's nobody, none, all. It's everybody. It's the whole human race since Adam and Eve. We're all in this fallen condition. So we're not just pretty good people. We can't just go, yeah, I think I'm okay with God. And maybe you admit, okay, I'm not perfect. I'm not as bad as some people, but I'm pretty good compared to a lot of people. And I just think, you know, if I do some good things, that will offset the bad things. I'll I'll go to church. That's a good one. 
That'll offset some bad things. But again, you would be very wrong. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works. You can't work for it. You can't earn it or achieve it by anything you can do, lest anyone should boast. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. Nothing less than his blood shed on the cross can pay the debt of our sin. And then he rose again the third day to show he is the only one who can rescue us and bring us to God. So if God is convicting you of your need of salvation and how desperate that need is and the impossibility of rescuing yourself, look to Jesus and trust in him alone to forgive your sin and restore you to God. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have made salvation available as a gift to be received by faith. We don't have to be good enough to qualify. It's not like we have to do so many good things to earn it. You've said that's impossible. It is a gift you have provided in Jesus. And so I pray for anyone here that has never received the gift of salvation in Jesus, that even today, He would give them the gift of faith and they would put all their hope and trust in him. Lord, many of us have trusted in Christ as our only hope. I pray that we would weigh what we heard today against what your word says. And Lord, that you would just give us understanding and grace to see salvation in all its greatness. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and close with amazing grace. How sweet the sound.